Morning, Crosswalk, and welcome back as we investigate the new normal that we've been living in for the last 2,000 years. As we discover this new normal, we understand that there are characters that are worth spending time on because they really typify what the new normal is. These are people that see the world, but they see it slant. They see it a little differently, and they always have seen it just a little bit differently. So I'm going to ask you this question to get started. Do you have any weirdos in your life? And I mean weird, like truly weird, interesting, fascinating people. Do they defy what you thought normal was and push you towards something just a little bit different? Those who see the world just a little slant and you wonder and wish for their perspective. I mean, it's people who feel like they're, they're barely living on our own fabric of existence. And in scripture, we come across a lot of those people. And as we study the book of Matthew, studying this new normal that we're all living into, that we have proposed, we have been living in for the last 2,000 years, we understand that one of those characters was John. And John the Baptist was a weirdo. He was in a scene, probably. He was unique for sure. When I say a scene, it means that he comes from a particular tradition within Judaism that would isolate themselves in certain communities. They had lots of rituals and lived a very disciplined life. The rituals often had to do with purifying themselves and water. The most famous of these Essene communities can be found on the road to Masada close to the Dead Sea. We call it Qumran. Well, they call it Qumran. And it's where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was a, a section of the Isaiah scrolls, in fact, lots of bits and pieces of the Isaiah scroll that predated anything we had for about 700 years. That was found outside of Qumran, that Essene community. And so he was coming from that community. Now, when I say he was a weirdo, he wasn't a weirdo who was like a look at me weirdo, right? He wasn't somebody who was, who was doing things so that you would see them and make sure you notice them. He was a weirdo that simply lived differently. He had, he was almost iconoclastic. In his uniqueness. We're studying from the book of Matthew and we'll be starting chapter 3. We're going to go through 1 through 17, so we've got a lot of work to do today, so hang on. Here we go. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. Now, before we get to what his message was, we understand that this is a nod to the fact that he was probably coming from an isolated community that was a little anti-establishment, a little bit out there, but also recalls Israel's time in the desert. Now, I'm going to ask this question before we move on because I think it's pretty important. And it's this. Have you ever had your time in the desert? I mean, have you ever felt listless? Have you ever felt lost? Unsure of what's going on? Wanting to get back on track? I would propose that perhaps many of us are feeling that way right now. As we look at everything that's happening in the world, COVID, isolation, um, incredible divisiveness, as we understand that this has been even a weird week in the United States, even this week, many of us are feeling this right now. So we got to ask ourselves some questions as we go through our time in the desert. And the first question is this, how is God reaching you in this time? Because even though we're in the desert, God doesn't necessarily leave us there by himself. While desert time kind of stinks, we got to ask the question, how are you handling it? And how is God reaching you in the midst of this tra change or transition? I mean, are you handling it well, poorly? Are you handling it in a way where your pendulum is swinging so far that you're happy and joyful one minute and crying and, and in despair the next moment? 
2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us kind of this answer as he's been going through it. He said, in fact, we expected to die, but as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God who raises the dead. This is Paul giving us some perspective. Perhaps this is how we get through our desert moments. The second question is, what is God teaching you in this time? When we think of desert time, we have to think about what we are learning and what God is teaching us because we don't want to waste desert time. We want to make sure that it is a useful time. Isaiah 12 too, who experienced time in the desert, simply said this, See, God has come to save me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord God's strength is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. And perhaps this is one of the best things that we can learn on our walks and in our lives. And as we deal with time in the desert, this time of being unsure and transitioning, we can believe that God is teaching us to rely on him even more than we have before. So this brings us to the last question we have to ask ourselves, which is how is God refining you in this time? And, and, and God can do this in so many different ways. He can use friends. He can use family. He can use your community, pastors, therapy, counselors, and of course, scripture. Because once we begin to understand where we look to for real help, we can begin to be refined in the way that God wants us to be refined. Psalm 121 is still one of my favorite Psalms. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? But the truth is, no, my help comes from the Lord who made the mountains, who made heaven and made earth. It comes from above the mountain. You see, God uses our time in the desert to reach us, to teach us, and to refine us. God, God's time is never wasted. Whatever you are going through, there is a purpose, even if, if it is simply to teach us patience, sometimes to teach us silence, sometimes to grow us, and sometimes to give us a clear idea of our purpose and our calling. Now, John was a desert weirdo, but he did have a message. And he was using his desert time to great advantage for preparing the way of the Lord. He didn't let the desert stop his message. In fact, they came to hear him. Because sometimes people will come to the desert to hear a word from God. So what are you preaching from your experience? What are you telling people about God? This is what John was telling people. He said, repent of your sins and return to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now this is a hard word as it always is when we're called to repent, but it is also a message of hope, not just repent, but also the kingdom of God is near. Do you feel that the kingdom of God is near? I mean, now, right now. Could you preach this message in this messy world? Why or why not? Because sometimes the kingdom of God is most tangible when things seem the most worst. The most worst when things seem the worst. Isn't it truly that when the world feels like it's falling apart, we should lean on what we say we believe the most? The kingdom of God is near, is present, is here. Matthew, in Matthew, he continues. He says the prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. 
See, Matthew connects John to the biggest prophet that the Jews had, therefore solidifying his provenance in Israel's history and beyond. This guy comes from the line of prophets that you have to listen to. And then he moves on in verse 4, explaining who John was, explaining how he was kind of a weirdo. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. Food, for food he ate locusts and wild honey. Again, he's a weirdo. He stands out because he doesn't just see the world like you do. I've got some friends who have found their way into the entertainment industry, and I love hearing from these. In fact, I heard from one of these friends just just yesterday, he texted me and he said, hey, my new album's coming out. I want you to hear it. I'm going to send you some pre-tapes. I'm, I'm holding him to it and I'm excited for it. But, but this is a guy who one time came to church when he lived in this area and half his head was shaved. And I said, man, why, why didn't you finish your haircut? And he said, oh, I'm only doing things in the time it takes to do something else. So I was, I was boiling a pot of tea and I was cutting my hair. And when the pot of tea was done, I was done cutting my hair. He was not done cutting his hair, but that's how he viewed the world. He's a genius, but he sees the world slant. This was John. And, and it had an effect, right? It had an effect. People from Jerusalem and all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John because we are drawn to those who can tell us truth that we cannot see. We're drawn to those who tell us truth that we cannot see. Truth that we cannot find in our mundane experience, in our mundane existence. We can't see it, but they can, and they can remind them of it. And man, when they came and when they were convicted, when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. And this is very a scene of him as well. And he's setting precedence for us to receive baptism as we get convicted in our hearts of the fact that the kingdom of God is near. And that we want to follow Jesus Christ. But John being an iconoclast of weirdness, there's no way that he can simply leave it alone. Because when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptized, he looked at them and he denounced them. He said, you brood of snakes. He called them vipers. Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? He's speaking truth to power. You can only speak truth to power when you have nothing to lose. You can only speak truth to power when you are deeply convicted about what God has put on your heart to speak to power. Power doesn't always listen. In fact, power rarely listens. But that's power's problem, not your problem. Your job is to be obedient to the call that God gave you. He wasn't afraid to warn them that they were on the wrong side of this one. But then he gives them an interesting bit of advice. He says to them, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. And this challenge, man, it was tangible. It was palpable. He didn't just challenge them to repent. He didn't just challenge them to make a statement, but he challenged them to live differently, to show their root by their fruit. His challenge to them was to show their roots by living their fruits. And isn't this a challenge for everyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ? To let your fruit show your roots? Isn't this important? What are the fruits of those who inform your life? Again, I think this is deeply and incredibly important. Who you give authority to in your life either feeds or poisons your roots. 
you can tell by the fruits they are living. Right? And not just with, with those that you know, but with those that you help, you disagree with, and those who help you. The fruits of those around you and the fruits of those that you give your allegiance and authority to are clear. And that expresses the roots of what they believe and who they are. And man, he goes on in Matthew 3, 9. He says, don't just say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing for I tell you. God can create children of Abraham from these very Stones. Now this statement, I, I think we underestimate the power of this statement. I really do. I think the power of this statement is simply from the fact that he says, you think you're safe because you have some sort of lineage, some sort of advantage. You come from a particular you know, social class. You come from a, a particular religion or race. You think that you're safe because of that. Listen, all those things that make you safe, God can recreate out of stones that are lying on the ground. That's how worthless those things are. God can make a new group that he chooses out of rocks. I mean, we were made out of dust anyway. And then he, then he presses on. He moves on a little bit deeper in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit, not just fruit, good fruit, will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And while he's just proving the previous point here, He's being deeply illustrative so that they will understand that a tree that produces bad fruit is worthless. And it is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Because bad fruit creates bad fruit. And then he says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not worthy even to be his slave and to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's forecasting, which is a good literary tool. But he also speaks to John's purpose. It speaks to John's purpose. What he is there for. What is your purpose? Is it to prepare the way of the Lord in the same way that John did for this world that so desperately needs a savior? What do you believe you are called for and to? What is it that you are called to witness for? Is it to Christ or is it to something else? Because we can only have one thing that we submit to, one thing that we follow in our lives. If we have something else, we're dividing our time. And you know what scripture says again and again about divided obedience. Then he continues in verse 12. We'll just continue on here. He's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. All this sounds like judgment, and it is. But not our judgment on people. God's righteous judgment on the roots of our lives. 
And man, so we're hearing John speak. We're hearing him talk to the crowds. People are being convicted. People are being baptized. He's already forecasted that someone is coming. And then in the text, we see a shift from John to Jesus. And this is a shift that John welcomed. And he never shied away from in any of the gospels. You see, he was there to fulfill a purpose. And when that purpose showed up, he was happy to fulfill his role and not want more. Sometimes we get confused that we are the message, not the medium. And we put ourselves or we put our desires or our ideologies into, the, into what we are witnessing to as opposed to as Christians, as followers of Christ, being those that prepare the way of the Lord. And when the Lord shows up, time for us to shut up. We don't need to insert ourselves once God has shown up. And John understood when it was time for him to take a step back. So the scripture here changes in focus from John to Jesus. And it says, then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Jesus did this not because he needed to submit to a human, but it was to fulfill what was promised and to remind people that he was willing to live under God's will. I've got this question for you today. Are you, are we willing to live under God's will for our lives? We always talk about finding God's will, but do you ever wonder if maybe we don't find God's will because we haven't submitted to it in the first place? Have you ever thought about that? Are we waiting for the results? Is that the reason why we're not submitting? We're waiting for the results to see if we want to submit? That's not the way submission works. That's not the way obedience works. When we give ourselves to God, we go, God, wherever, whenever, however, that's what I'll do. Even if we don't know, in fact, most of the time we don't know. I think back to Abraham. When he says, will you follow me? And Abraham says, yeah. And he says, okay, I'm gonna take you out. To a land I'll show you. I'm not even going to tell you where I'm going. Go, go east. Go west. Go one direction. I'll show you. How many of us are willing to submit before we have a clear understanding of where it is God wants us to go? Because that's true obedience. That's true allegiance. And that's true loyalty. But, but you see, he showed up and John knows who this guy is. And John tried to talk him out of it. He said, listen, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? When you come in contact with the real God, you again understand your status. You understand your place in the universe. You have a tendency to at that point realize how unworthy you are. And this is what John just went through. And so John said, no, 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 I'm not the guy to do this. John realized his status and realized, you know what? I'm not worthy to baptize you. What am I going to baptize you into? You? How does that work? And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. It should be done. For we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. Why? Because John was convinced, not when Jesus showed up. John was convinced before that as he accepted his purpose to make straight the way of the Lord. Knowing your status helps you understand your calling. Helps you understand your purpose. If you're not sure what your status is in the grand scheme of the universe under God, then you're always going to be striving for something that's either unattainable or something that you don't actually want to get because it will destroy who you are. Understanding who Jesus is and 
who you are is paramount to understand and fulfilling your calling. After his baptism. And this part I love, right? This is such a good story. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, this is one of the reasons, by the way, that we baptize by immersion, because we believe that Jesus came up out of the water, as the Greek says. The heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And then we're going to see something happen that we don't see in all other parts of Scripture. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all in one place, and God speaks. And a voice from heaven says, this is my dearly beloved or loved Son. And some translations say, in whom I am well pleased, but I love the New Living Translation that says, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Man, in the New Testament, this is really one of the only times God speaks. The other time he speaks at the ascension is where he says, um, is where he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I wonder, if we're in that same situation, what would God say about us? Will he be pleased with us? Will we bring him great joy? Or will we constantly disappoint? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like, especially now, I feel like everybody's constantly being disappointed. And the struggle in today's world is that disappointment turns to rancor. Reasonable is considered radical and there is no more middle ground. And because of this, we walk around like bare wires, ready for sparks to fly at even brushing up against someone that is a different pole than we are. How does any of this cause God great joy? How can we be the kind of people that God delights in? So today there's one question you gotta walk away with, which is what will God say about you? When he mentions your name, when he looks back on your life, when he looks back in this desert time that we're living, will he say, man, they brought me great joy. I don't think they'll, he'll say, oh, they figured it out. They knew everything. They got it right. I think they'll say, man, they gave me great joy. Because even in the midst of the unknowing, they were seeking. They were allowing me to reach them, allowing me to teach them, allowing me to refine them. They were willing to stay on the journey, submitting to my will, even when they didn't know it. What I want God to say about me is that he was lost a lot of the time. He was, he was confused a lot of the time, but man, every single detour brought me great joy because he was still seeking my will. He was still seeking a way to find. He was still seeking to lead in a place that brought people to more compassion and mercy and love. What will God say about you? Does it matter to you? Because if it matters to you, you have to take stock of who and what it is that you're following to make sure that the submission 
you have given is to God. John knew it. And later on, even in the book of John, we see him saying, listen, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. That's okay, because I know who I am. I'm a follower. I'm a follower of Christ, and that can't be denied. John went to his grave with that nomenclature on him. And my bet is God would have said, man, I delight in John. What will God say about you? What will God say about me? And what will God say about us as a community? As dispersed and isolated as we might be today, what will God say about what has happened through the movement that we call Crosswalk? Let's bow our heads today. God of grace, these stories 2,000 years old, renewing us a passion for you. They stir our hearts in a way that maybe we haven't been stirred for a while. Because Lord, maybe we've been out in the desert for so long that it feels like we'll never get home. May we recognize that home is where you are, even if it's in a desert. Lord, reach us, teach us, refine us. And remind us to submit to your will even when you don't know what it is. Like John. And Lord, like Jesus, may you take great delight in us. In your name I pray. Amen.